hey, Jeremy, can you turn the monitors off? Do you know how to do that? Hey, Kaylin, can you turn the monitors off? There's so much echo when I can Anyway. Um, so when I was a little kid, I've actually gone back and forth on how to begin talking about our topic this morning. Um, but I, I think um, the story I want to share, uh, when I was a little kid, and we were living, I think, in San Antonio at the time, and uh, um, I, it's one of my earliest, like, clear memories. And I, I was sitting, I was outside with a group of kids, and I remember we, we lived in a cul-de-sac. They don't have those in Montana, but it's a big circle where a bunch of houses are. You can kind of drive in and turn around and leave, if you have any sense. Um, and and um, we, so we lived in this cul-de-sac, and I remember we were doing races around the cul-de-sac with the different kids. And I, uh, you know, we were all cheering, you know, I'm, I don't know, four or five, I guess. It's quite a while ago. And I, I used a word in my shouting that I, I, uh, I, at the time, had no idea what it meant. Um, but it would be a word that, that was um, very culturally um, out of practice, um, something that was, was pretty, pretty not okay. Um, and I'm not going to share it today. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I remember um, one of the older kids turned to me and was like, oh, my goodness, you're in trouble. And I remember, like, this moment of terror, realizing that I'd said something that I shouldn't have and not knowing exactly what was wrong. Um, and I really, you know, I had no idea that I had done something wrong. I was a little kid, you know. And I, I remember that kid running and telling my mom. And my mom called me in, and I was in trouble. And, and I was told, well, you, you know, when your father gets home. And, and I, I don't remember waiting um, but I do remember my dad getting home and my mom and dad having this conversation. And my dad walked me into his study. And he sat me down and he sat down across from me. And he looked me in the eye and he had a conversation with me. And he said, this is what the word you said means. And real men don't talk that way. You know, other people talk that way, but that's not how we talk. Real men don't talk that way. And then he sent me on my way. And man, I was glad I did not get hit. Um, and and I, I, but the thing that was impressive about it, and I, I remember as a little kid, I, I think maybe the big impression that I got out of it was um, my dad looked at me and, and told me, this is how we act. This is what we're supposed to do. And, and honestly, living in various places and at different times in my life, I've been around people who spoke that way. And, and I honestly, I've never, ever been able to, like, make that word come out of my mouth, like not in a social loose context because, because I consider it offensive. I think it's beneath how I'm supposed to talk. Um, and there's nothing in the world that's going to change that because I learned a very important lesson that day, right? Um, we're going through a series right now that's specifically addressed at, at men, and we're looking at what does it mean to become a man after God's own heart. And um, Paul writes this verse that we're going to be looking at. It's two verses. You know, let's see if I can make two verses into an hour-long sermon. Um, <laughs> but I, I probably can't. Um, but these two verses tell us a great deal. And, and what we're going to be looking at is um, what is Paul instructing us, right? And as, before we jump into that, I wanted to talk about this idea that, that how we instruct folks and what we aim them toward will determine what they become. And actually, like, um, a great deal in our lives is determined by our, by our parents, right? Specifically our fathers. You know, I, I um, 
we learn to become a man by observing our dads, right? Like young men, we learn to become men by observing our dads. And sometimes that means we do the opposite of what he did, right? I knew folks that grew up and they said, I don't care what I have to do. I'll do the opposite of what he tells me. Or, you know, in the cases of folks who don't have men, they learn from, from different places. And, and we're kind of, as a culture, in an oddball place where um, dads have been devalued greatly. Am I right? And, like, what it means to be a man has changed greatly, like, in our culture. It's been um, cheapened very much. Um, I actually, about a week ago or two weeks ago, I posted a thing on my Facebook page about um, man cave. Does anybody heard this phrase before? Man cave. You know, and a man cave is a space where a man goes to be alone, right? And the thing just asked, what happened to having a study? You know, why do we have man caves now? And it, I would argue it's a, it's a reflection of a decreased expectation for men, right? We went from men aspiring to be great to men hanging out in their cave and being prehistoric, right? Like we've accepted a reality that, that is based in the, the sinful nature. Men should never be better than this. This is as good as it gets. Instead of driving to become something better, I'm not knocking on guys who have man caves, by the way. Um, um, I'm, I'm knocking on the idea that men can never be better. And what Paul gives is a set of instructions that is a lofty goal. And in the series so far, like what we've talked about, we started out talking about the idea that Jesus is our ideal objective, right? Like we grow up looking at our dads like he, he, I don't know about you guys, my dad was Superman, right? He just was. Like my dad was, was, he was wise, he was, you know, strong, he was tough, he was brave, he was everything. And I, I, you know, looked up to my dad so much. And ultimately, as an adult, I, I still do, but I've come to understand that um, what my father represented and the things that inspired me and my father were actually a reflection of who Jesus is and what God desires me to become, like as somebody who's pursuing being like, like what I'm supposed to be, right? These ideals, these perfect things that we see, you know, sort of manifest, um, they're, they're all about who Jesus is, and that's why they inspire us, because the Holy Spirit, like, like, jumps into our programming, our design. Men are designed to be better, right? And because of sin and the fall, we, we just don't manage it. And so as we drive towards better, like, like Jesus is the ideal. Jesus is the perfect example, and we pursue his example. Um, last week, we talked about prayer, and prayer is kind of the engine that makes all of this work. Right? You cannot just try real, real hard to become like Jesus and hope to get there. Um, becoming like Jesus is a process of spiritual revolution and remodeling that you know, begins with prayer and lots of it. Because um, Honestly, because there's this part of us that's broken and evil and, and would rather hang out in the man cave than, than aspire for something better. Again, not knocking on guys with man caves. It's just a cool phrase. Um, and so like... like um, you know, prayer is sort of at the middle of it. And now we're going to look at the instructions, which is a decidedly unmanly thing to do. But Paul gives us a very clear set of goals, right? If I was, my wife and I drove to Calgary a few weeks ago, um, and I, I actually had to look at the instructions to get to Calgary, right? I, I am not like quite at the point where I can look at the position of the sun and the stars and get there, right? Like I had to get out the instructions and go, um, and so we're going to be looking at Paul's instructions, the roadmap he gives us um, for how men ought to act. Um, and this is in the book of Corinthians. Um, a little background. Corinthians is like, it's a church that Paul loves, right? Paul literally spent a year, like a year and a half 
in Corinth, like, like establishing the church, is longer than Paul spent anywhere else um, in establishing a church. He set down roots there. He made friends. He invested. Paul was very deeply connected to this, organ- you know, this, this community and this church. And while he was there, uh, or actually after he left, he wrote a series of letters. Not one letter, not two letters. We have First and Second Corinthians, right? But there's actually a third letter that he references in the first one. He says, oh, yeah, I wrote you earlier. So there's actually a, you know, First Corinthians we don't have, and then second and third. Um, but we don't have it because Paul, but Paul corresponded with these guys heavily, and he was constantly sending folks back and forth, right? He had folks who were interacting. Um, this letter, 1 Corinthians, is kind of a theological grab bag. He is answering questions, right? This is the, uh, the first letter he received was, hey, we have a list of problems and questions, and we'd like to ask them. Here they are. And he, they listed off all these questions, and Paul writes back and says, all right, Here's an answer to this, here's an answer to this, here's an answer to this, here's an answer to this. And there are a bunch of themes that work their way through. Um, unity in the church, uh, spiritual gifts, calling as far as the job you do in the church, what sorts of attitudes you have in reflecting Christ, like these sorts of things. And so like that's sort of the context for the verse, but we come into the very end, and Paul in the last paragraph, and I'm going to read part of it, but we're not going to do the whole thing, which is a really unusual thing for me, Okay. Um, my wife told me not to say I'm breaking one of my own rules anymore because I do it every week and now because I keep breaking my own rules. Um, but in this, I mean, he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. So that's before the verse and then after the verse. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts of Achaia, and, um, and that they have donated themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice in the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus. So he's, I mean, like, just to give you, I'm not going to finish it. I'm just going to give you, like, a brief. He is knocking out the ends of the letter, right? Um, we don't really, I don't know, I know Michael writes probably 30 letters a week, but I don't know many folks who write letters anymore. I know when I write them, I usually touch my main idea, and then I get to the end, and I'm like, sign my name, and then, oh, I forgot, P.S. <laughs> and then, oh, wait a minute, hold on, P.S.S., there's a P.P.S. Oh, I've been doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> um, and it just keeps going and going and going in my world, and this is what Paul's doing. He's sort of like knocking out the business, right? But right in the middle of the business, he gives a basic set of instructions, almost like a telegram. You could pull this out and read it on a fortune cookie slip. It is short, right? But it is good, and it is valuable. It's something worth reading. And so we're going to jump into that. Um, 16, 13 to 14, two verses. All right, two verses. It starts out, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Okay, This is a series of commands. There's four of them. Paul gives five commands in total in these two verses, right? And we're going to divide them up, and these are the ones I'm going to call steel, right? Um, Who's the man of steel? Well, no. Man of steel is Superman, right? (laughs) I, uh, gosh, I'm not going to make a joke. I'm just going to drink my tea. I'm not going to spit it out. Um, and I'm going to, um, so this, this man of steel thing, I'm reading a book called, uh, steel and velvet, man of steel and velvet. 
and we're going to talk about these first four as steel, right? Like these are the steel components of a man. These things are the do the job, right? This is in front of you. This is what is expected of you. This is what you need to get done, right? And our culture tends to emphasize one at the expense of the other or de-emphasize one and emphasize the other. I mean, it's always one or the other, and we do a bad job of balancing them. But we're going to dive into these lists. By the way, these are all written in what's called the third person plural. Now, Greek has multiple persons for commands, right? These are all commands are called imperatives. So these are all, hey, do this, do that, do this, do that. And in third person plural, he is talking like just specifically like a group of people within the church. Okay? So um, this would be like if I were to say, um, children, go clean your room. Right? Like it's aimed at a group of people um, specifically. And, and so that's how you would kind of translate. You would say, or let my children go clean their room now. You know, it's sort of a command that's, you know. And so I'm, I'm, what Paul is doing is saying, listen, men, do these things. Now, this is a funny verse, and we'll get to the reason why in a second. But, like, I'm going to argue that he is addressing men, but this is one of those things that actually applies well to everyone. Um, but we're going to look at it kind of as Paul wrote it. Um, so starting out, be watchful. What the heck is Paul talking about? What am I supposed to watch for? Um, Paul is talking about a handful of things here. First off, he's talking about Christ's return. Every time Paul says, be watchful or be aware or be on guard or be this or be that, like almost every time he uses the phrase, he's talking about Jesus is coming back. The end is near. Be prepared, folks. Right? And like eventually this becomes this theme of where Paul says, hey, you know what? Probably Jesus is going to take longer to come back than we thought, but you know what? You still need to be watchful because it could happen any time. And the truth is still there today, right? Jesus could come back tomorrow. He could come back the next day. Um, don't listen to folks who start saying, oh, it's July 14th, buy my book and I'll tell you why, right? Because if they're selling you a book, they don't really believe the world is going to end. If they're giving books out, then they might really mean it. Um, what's the point of getting rich if the world's ending? Think about it. Um, <laughs> um, so Christ, Christ is coming back. Be aware. Be on guard. Um, he's also talking about division in the church. He says, listen, um, the, the letter actually opens in the first chapter. He says, guys, stand together. Be on guard. Like, stand together. Be on guard against division. Be on guard against the things that just split you up. Like, be aware, right? Um, he's talking about false teaching and error. There are a whole bunch of folks who are coming around the churches, and they're saying, hey, this is great theology. Let me add something to it. And Paul is saying, hey, don't buy what these people are selling right? Be aware that you're not incorporating garbage into your faith. And I'm going to tell you, this is applicable today, and here's why. Um, because, it, actually, anybody ever visit the Christian bookstore in Great Falls? Um, when you walk the shelves, it is astounding to me. I, I, I did this just recently. Um, I walked down the line, and I said, well, you know, this guy doesn't really preach the gospel, this guy is pretty open about the fact that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. This guy doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead. This guy, you just write through the bestseller list. Um, there's a lot of that. And that sort of like, like nonsense has crept into churches where folks preach this silliness, where like the most prominent Christian folks like in the country preach things that aren't the gospel, that aren't grace and salvation. And the reason that happens is because we don't really pay attention. We say, oh, well, that's okay, Right? Oh, well, that's okay. Or we pick our own 
topics and we get hung up on them and we sort of sacrifice the gospel in exchange. Um, I have been watching, anybody watched any of the Pope stories this week? Y'all are aware, there's a guy, he lives in, (laughs) he lives in Italy. I think he's from like Brazil or something. No, he's not a plumber. Um, But he he is in the United States, and the thing that has fascinated me is I have watched folks on either side of the political spectrum argue about why this man is evil. And it's sort of funny. It's like, wait a minute. Like, if he stands up and talks about Jesus and preaches the gospel, um, isn't that what we should worry about as opposed to where his political alliances are? Um, But, like, we can't see that sometimes because we're so wound up with, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be like those guys. This is everybody in, in the country. Like, we're doing this right now. And we are, our lack of watchfulness is allowing the gospel to fall second tier to political agenda. And it's a terrible thing. It's something that we need to be careful about. Um, and so I toss that out. Like, watchfulness is huge, that we are on top of the purity of the message and the truth of the gospel and not making it into a bunch of stuff that it isn't. Um, moral purity. Oh, all right. Um, being on watch for moral purity um, does refer to the folks around us, right? Because we have a job to do in relation to each other as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to help each other grow toward Christ, right? However, like Jesus gives us a great teaching. He says, uh, hey, you know what? If you're sticking out, like you're hanging out with your buddies, and you look and you see that your brother has a bit of sawdust in his eyes, before you point it out, you need to make sure there isn't a two-by-four hanging out of yours or a log, right? Um, vigilance when it comes to moral purity begins with us, men. Begins with us, men. If my father had sat down with me and said, men don't talk that way, and then I heard him later in the day saying the same words, what would I have done? Well, that's a lot of respect for him, wouldn't I have? I, uh, I talk to a lot of guys who, who smoke, Right? And I'd say, well, you know what my dad told me all the time? Don't smoke. And so I just stole cigarettes from him. <laughs> well, okay then. You know, and, and there's a lack of integrity. The reality is you cannot stand and you cannot like point to Jesus properly if you are ignoring his teachings, right? And so like for us men, we have to maintain a moral purity and we have to be watchful for it. Why is that? Because it is so easy to fall out of it. I have crazy rules I follow. In my life, like I will not sit down in my office with no one else in the building with a with a female, right? It's not against any of y'all. It's not because I think I'm the most handsome man in the world and everybody's interested. It's because um, once you start lowering your standards and saying, "Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's okay," um, you never know where you're going to end up. Um, I. people oftentimes begin with major sin by making minor compromises. And so we're called to to diligence in our own lives. What is okay for me and what isn't? Um, What am I chasing after? What am I, like, putting high standards toward? Um, We have to be watchful. We have to be aware. We have to be on guard. Um, By the way, this term has a military background. The first four phrases Paul uses, all military, right? Right? Um, which I think is significant because he's talking to men, right? Um, so, and the final thing is pride. Pride is sneaky. It is. Um, 
if I stand up and I say, I am a good Christian because I'm not like all of those other bad Christians, what's that? That's me putting myself on a pedestal, right? If I look at another person and say, well, that guy's terrible because he's sinning, and I forget the fact that I am also a sinner, that is pride. If I forget to turn around and point at God and say, great things happen because Jesus is moving, because God's Holy Spirit is at work, because God is amazing, um, that is pride. It happens in pastors all the time. We see a lot of pastors who fall apart or who get lost. I, there's a particular pastor, I, I listen to his sermons periodically just to warn me. I'm picking on other pastors, and I, I'm doing this not because I'm better than him, because I've done some of it, right? I fall into this trap myself. But there's a guy I listen to because every scripture verse is about him. You know, everyone. It's crazy. Every scripture. I mean, like, you can't find anything in the Bible that's not about him. Um, and in reality, the Bible's about Jesus. Um, and I fall into that periodically. It's easy for me to fall into it. And so I watch this and I say, do not be like this, right? Because I'm better? No, because I'm just as liable. This is just as easy. Pride prevents us from getting better because it blinds us. It keeps us from becoming, like, um, open to Christ reshaping us. It keeps us from becoming, um, from actually confessing. That's one of the worst things in the world. I've watched men dying in their own sin, drowning in their own sin. Their whole life is falling apart, and they're doing the best they can just to keep a front up so nobody will figure out that they are dying. Right, So no one will ever know that this is going to happen or that this is happening or that I'm hiding all of this because they just cannot be vulnerable because, honestly, pride keeps us from being vulnerable. Um, I, when we lived in Indiana, we lived in a very wealthy community. And it was funny to me to go to somebody's house and visit, and they would have, like, a brand-new BMW every year, giant 10-bedroom house, you know, not 10, probably 6 or 7, it's still more than I had, um, You'd walk in and they have no furniture. <laughs> and if you talked to them long enough, you could suss out the fact that, like, they were about three weeks away from going bankrupt at any given moment. But their paychecks are just covering enough for this huge amount of spending they're doing to make it look like they're financially secure and comfortable. But in reality, like, if they stopped receiving paychecks for three weeks, they would have to, like, move out. And they're constantly, oh, well, maybe I'll move this debt to this credit card. Hey, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Because they're putting out an image, and that's just pride. And pride prevents us from fixing problems. Um, pride is actually what makes it easier to look at other people and say, I'm better than you, right? So I don't have to make my own sin better, because as long as I'm better than you, I'm okay. Um, so that's, he starts out, be on watch, and then stand firm. Um, this isn't surprising. Stand firm should be like the most obvious one in the book because he's used this phrase repeatedly. Um, we look at, uh, let's see, 15.1 and verse 58. I got him. I wanted to read him real quick. Um, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, um, unless what you believed, you believed in vain. Um, so what Paul is talking about, he's saying, listen, um, I preached to you that Jesus came back to life after he died, right? Just stand firm in that. Stand firm in it. Don't give up on it. Don't let go on it. Don't stumble against it. Don't act in fear and believe, oh, there is no resurrection, there is no heaven. Don't, like, allow yourself to stumble in it. Um, why is that so important? Well, because you've got folks coming around saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Right? Jesus is not actually the only way to heaven. Um, and that doesn't apply to us now at all, right? 
where about half the established churches in the country don't preach the resurrection anymore. I'm not making that up, right? The major denominations, a lot of them have abandoned it. Or that Jesus is the only way to salvation. A lot of the major denominations have abandoned it. Um, it's something that is like a doctrine that is central to our faith that like is being chipped away at. Um, in reality, like we're supposed to stand in this. We're supposed to say, this is what I believe. This is my foundation. This is where I'm going to stand. Um, when, I, when I was a kid, I played Little League. Anybody ever play baseball? I know that we don't play baseball in Big Sandy. Um, but, like, I learned, I remember one of the lessons. I, I think it was my dad that taught me this, too, actually. Um, I would always stand way back in the batter's box and in the back corner. And he said, you know what? If you're going to stand up there, stand up like you want to get a hit, not like you're afraid. He said, you stand up in the front, and you hold your bat high, and you defend your plate, and that's what you're supposed to do, right? This is the gospel. This is our area. We stand tall in it. We believe in it. We stand firm. We don't back down. We don't act afraid. We do what's meant to be done, right? Um, and that's what he's directing. Stand firm in the gospel. In uh, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, right? Be steadfast. Stand firm. Plant your feet and mean it, right? Um, I've been doing physical therapy with Kurt and watching sports not a sports fan, um, but it's interesting to me to watch football players get run over on the line, right? And I always wonder, were you set when that happened, or were your feet unsteady? Being set and standing firm is a process. It is not an instant thing. Um, Ten, twelve, real quick. Uh, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand that he stands take heed lest he fall. Um, so what's he saying? He's saying, listen. Pay attention because it is easy to fail, right? Pay attention. Don't fall. And so he's saying, stand tall, don't fall down. Um, what else does that mean? Well, for, or what does it require? Well, if you're going to do it as a job, if you're going to say this is a command, a direction, this is part of the instruction manuals, this is how I'm supposed to act like a man like who is like Jesus, it means knowing what you believe. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because knowing what you believe means that you have to pay attention and learn. It means that you might have to, like, like, devote time to learning, right? It means that you have to find the right teachers and learn from them, which isn't that easy either, right? Because um, there are bad teachers everywhere. Um, it means that you may have to sit down and talk to other guys and learn from them. Um, and then you have to trust in it as a real way of life. Um, it's easy to do now, right, because we're sitting in church on Sunday morning. Um, but I, I know personally sometimes I'm afraid when I stand or I'm, Nervous, or I honestly am intimidated when I stand with folks who don't like hearing what I have to say to stand up and say, well, this is what it means. Um, it was a crazy thing for me the first time I tried to teach Bible to, like, gang kids, and they would, you know, I had some kid cuss me out and say, that's not true. <laughs> and it was quite a thing to say, well, actually, you know what it is. And, and I wasn't good at it when I started, but I learned to stand firm in it because I believed it was the truth, and it didn't matter if anybody said nasty things about me. It didn't matter if people thought I was weak. It didn't matter if people thought I was a fool. It didn't matter any of that because I'm going to stand firm in the truth that I know is the truth. Um, this is not easy, um, but it's what Jesus like did. If you look at Christ, Christ constantly faced opposition, and when he faced opposition, he said the hard things, Right? When he stood in his trial, he could have saved his own life, and he didn't. Repeatedly, he could have saved his own life, and he didn't. He stood in the truth that he knew was the truth, and he didn't waver. He didn't give. He didn't bend. He 
spoke the truth. Um, that's hard. Um, by the way, it, there's kind of a weird thing there where that means it also applies to what we believe, right? Um, there are times when I, I want to stand in the batter's box and out of it. Anybody ever do that? Jesus applies to every area of my life except that one. Jesus doesn't actually expect me to spend my money right. That's a hard one for me right now. I'm praying about it every day. It is hard for me to spend money well. Actually, I'm great at spending money. That's the problem. Um, But my money has to belong to Jesus first, right? I have to be a good steward of the gifts he gives me. And so, like, that's got to be in the batter's box with me. There are men who will say, everything except my marriage, right? Everything except my Internet activity. Everything except the words that come out of my mouth while I'm at work. Everything except, see where this goes? You're standing in and out of it, and you can't stand firm if you're not standing with both feet planted. Again, football, I, I watching highlights at Kurt's office. I'll watch like guys catch and be on one foot and then get hit, <laughs> tossed up in the air. You know, <laughs> because if you're not planted firm, like you're not going to stand firm. Um, and that means standing in the truth of it. That means your lifestyle. That means the way you live. That means the way you act. That means everything, what you consume. Um, act like men. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, right? The English Standard Version is a nice one because it tends to be very literal, like word for word, even sometimes when it's hard to be word for word. There are other translations that eliminate this. And they say, be cur- have courage. And they eliminate like the fact that Paul literally says, act like men. I mean, the, the, the word-for-word translation is act like men. They say courage, and actually the verse does come with a connotation of courage because of two Old Testament verses. Um, this was written in Greek, right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And there was a book that was written about, I don't know, when the Persians were in charge of the whole world, which would have been like, uh, I don't know, 600 ish, 500 ish. My history is awful. Um, and, and this book was the LXX. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Greek Jewish, the Greek speaking Jewish fellows, they translated these two verses and they used the word that he uses there for act like men, right? Um, and the passages we see this in are, um, in Joshua, be strong and courageous for you shall inherit the land that I swore to your fathers um, to give to them. And so roughly translated, a little more like roughly literally translated, like bad Chinese translation. Anybody ever read instructions that are bad Chinese? And it's kind of funny because it's so awkward. But the phrasing literally would be, be strong and manly, for you shall cause the people of this land that I swore to their fathers um, to give them. Uh, yeah. Uh, only be strong and very manly, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Um, but courageous is sort of the meaning, right? But courageous as a word is heavily tied to um, men acting maturely and with bravery. And so what Paul is saying is, he says, listen, um, be watchful. On your watch, be on your guard, pay attention. Stand firm in what you believe, and then act with mature courage, like manly courage, right? Now, what does that mean? Well, first off, it doesn't mean stupid courage, right? Um, I, I remember I worked with a, a Czech fella 
um, at, at Voice of America Radio like 100 years ago. And this fellow said to me, he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's one thing for the communists to come and arrest you because he had fled communist Czechoslovakia. So it's one thing for them to come and arrest you. Like, once they arrest you, I mean, there are all sorts of things they'll do. He said, any fool can stand up, spit on the ground, and take a bullet. So that's not courage. A dog will do that. He said, it's one thing to, like, oh, well, I don't care about dying. He's like, what they would do to you is they would put you in a ball-bearing factory without your family a hundred miles or a thousand miles from home where you'll never see them again. And all you get to do every day is get up and make ball bearings, go home. <laughs> you get up and you make ball bearings and you go home. And you lose all meaning. And he says, that's the worst thing that can happen to you, right? Um, manly courage is um, not just, oh, well, I'll do whatever. It's living for something better, right? It is a mature approach to life that says, I will do as God commands because this is what God commands. This is what needs to be done. This is a man of steel moment, right? Jesus did things that were hard sometimes. He sat in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood because he was so scared. He said, God, pass this cup away from me, right? But not my will but your will. Um, and so we're commanded act like men have courage, mature courage. And it's vital to both outward struggle and inward struggle. Why is that? Because first off, wow, what was that? Um, because first off, that um, was you, wasn't it, Jeremy? Um, because first off, like, as we look at sort of outward opposition, I mean, there are folks who oppose what we teach. Even within the church, there are folks who oppose what we teach. To be courageous in doing that is hard. To be courageous in your own family and say, this is how we are going to live, folks, right? That's hard. To be courageous in your teaching of your own family, in your leading of your own family, in your everything is hard. By the way, there are ways that that is hard that doesn't even make sense. I pick on Jeremy all the time because Jeremy drives... Anybody know? A minivan. <laughs> Jeremy drives a soccer mom mobile. Um, a daddy mobile. And I, I pick on him about it because I don't drive one. Um, <laughs> but, but because it's easy. But it, you know what? Honestly, it takes a degree of courage to stand up and say, you know what? This is what's best for my family. And I'm going to do what's best for my family no matter what. I, uh, I have tea parties with my daughter because I enjoy dressing in pink. Or no, I don't dress in pink for tea parties, I'm sorry. I enjoy sitting down like at the low sitting table with the teacups and you know, wearing my finery so that I can drink tea with Miss Piggy and my daughter and um, sometimes the dog, I guess, I don't know. Um, because that's a manly thing to do? Well, maybe, maybe not. By the cultural standard, it's not particularly manly, right? But I would rather do right by my daughter then pretend to be something that I don't want to be, right? Being manly is about doing what is right and courageously doing what is right rather than doing what is popular sometimes. Um, and so act like men. Inward struggle, how this works is, um, it is so much easier to pretend you're not sinning. Isn't it the truth? Yeah. And it's easy to look the other way. Oh, I don't have a problem. 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 Um, but it doesn't change the fact. Um, it is easy, I, I know I've talked to, for years and years and years, since um, probably 10 years plus, I've talked to like many, many men who struggle with addictions, like either to pornography or alcohol. And the hardest thing those guys ever have to do is say, I have a problem to anyone else, right? 
Um, it takes courage to acknowledge that sin is a reality in your life and that you're not perfect on your own and that you need to overcome it, that you need Jesus to help you, that you need other men to hold you accountable, that you need to do these things. That is hard. Um, but the reality is there's real courage in a man who's willing to do that and live right. Far more, far more courage than a man who sucks it up and destroys everyone around him, right? It takes courage. Honestly, beyond that, it takes courage to serve your family. Gosh, that's hard. Um, it takes courage to say, well, hey, I'm going to do these things because I love you, even though it might be what I consider to be not manly, right? Um, my father-in-law is one of my like heroes in life. I hope he doesn't listen to the sermon so he doesn't hear this. Um, but my father-in-law did any job he ever had to do in order to bring money home to serve his family. He did humiliating, terrible jobs sometimes, but he always had a job, and he always did it because it was his responsibility to take care of his family. That is courage, right? Um, again, if you were listening, Vince, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> finally, be strong, which means to be firm and resolute. Uh, this requires strength of character and strength of will. It is a product of prayer. It is a product of Christ being in us. Um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, um, talks about his weakness. He says that I got this thorn in my side and I beg God to take it away, right? And he begged over and over again. He says, three times I begged for God to take this thorn away. And what God's response was, hey, you know what? My strength is sufficient for you. My power is made complete in your weakness. And Paul says, so if that's true, I'll be as weak as I can because then Christ is in charge. And then I'm strong. Because our real strength, men, does not come from our arm. It does not come from our stubbornness. It does not come from our cowboy hat and cowboy boots. It does not come from any of the cultural trappings or how much I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or any of that other nonsense. Real strength comes from Christ in us. Um, real strength that can change the world that can change hearts, that can make things better, comes out of Christ. And it begins with us willingly saying, I am not strong enough to do this on my own. I need Jesus to do it for me. Is that easy? Not really. Um, but it's true. Second one, here we go. So first verse is done. <laughs> wow, I, anyway, second verse. Let all that you do be done in love. Sixteen fourteen. Um, one quality there. So the first ones are steel. This one's velvet, right? Becoming a man of steel and velvet. So be strong, be resolute, stand firm, do these things, and then do everything in love. And unfortunately, love is a word that we have ruined. Our culture has no idea what love is. I can say I love my wife, I love my children, I love tacos, and I love jazz. Does it mean the same thing every time? Not really, because I really love tacos. Um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, the word Paul used here is agape. It is not an emotional love. It is not a feeling love. Feeling is a part of it, right? There is no doubt that feeling love um, is a part of it, but in a much bigger way, love is about the way that you act and the way that you live and the way you approach the folks around you, right? I, uh, I knew a guy years ago who mistreated his wife to no end. He was the nastiest, meanest most foul-mouthed jerk when it came to his wife. But he would say, but I do love her, right? Guess what? You got your own definition of love there, and you're making it up. Um, 
agape, the word he uses, is like the word that describes like Jesus and God's selfless love. So when we talk about Jesus, it says, this is how we know what love is. Paul wrote this in another book. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what love is. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to do things for you because I love you. Right? While I'm God's enemy, he loves me enough to send his son for me. That's love. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, this is like three chapters earlier, right? Everybody had this recited at their wedding, right? I did. I don't know why, um, because it's not talking about marriage. But there's a great thing here, right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Which parts of those were feelings? Envy, I suppose. (laughs) But it, that's not, you know, roses and butterflies. In reality, if we do everything in love, right, we stand firm and strong, but it's all coated with a layer of love. It means acting in a way that treats other folks better than us, right? That involves treating other folks in a way that, like, is patient and kind and, and humble. Um, it's not, like, arrogant. It's not pushy. Um, it's not forcing our own way. It's meek instead. It's not um, easily angered. It doesn't carry a big collection of wrongs. None of that stuff. Like, so when Paul talks about it, like this is what love is. Now, husbands in the room, if you acted like this towards your wife, how would she respond? You'd be the best husband in the world, wouldn't you? Right? Because this is what really, like, a good standard of love is. He keeps going. It is not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Um, And so Paul closes with this directive that's basically pointing back to this previous thing. He says, listen, guys, be strong, be resolute, watch out, be aware. Watch out is a huge one because it's easy to fall asleep, isn't it? Or to get too busy and not pay attention? Or is it just me who does that? Um, all of these things, be strong, be manly. And then he says at the same time, love has got to be in all of it. Forgiving, patience, like full of grace, full of humility, not forcing your way. And so when we look at what does it mean to be like Jesus, what is the instruction manual? Paul lays it out right there, right? Be a man of steel and a man of velvet, which we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. Um, we're going to close in prayer, and i got a challenge. I'm a little long today. Sorry, guys. Um, two verses. I couldn't even do it then. I'm glad my wife's not here today so that I don't hear about it. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. pray that you would give us grace um, um, to be men of, men of strength, men of firmness, men of resolute attitude. And I pray that you would, um, beyond that, Lord God, help us to be men of love. Help us to be uh, both steel and velvet in the people that we deal with. In Christ's name, amen. Um, So in closing, I do have a challenge, and I have way more copies than I need because I forgot there was a wedding this weekend and a lot of folks are out of town. Um, There are two halves to this, right? Um, I have pieces of paper. I'm going to take both of these home, and I'm going to hang them up on my wall, right? My challenge for you is, Pick one up. I got a pile of highlighters here because I buy my highlighters at Sam's Club, not realizing that I don't need a hundred of them. Um, um, take it home with you. Highlight what you got to work on. Hang it up. Look at it every morning. Right. 
So the first one is our five things. The second one is, um, it's just a love verse with blanks. Write your name in it. See how ashamed you feel or how proud you are of what you're doing with these things, right? Um, in my life, is Eric patient? Eric is kind. Eric does not envy. Eric does not boast. If Paul gives us standards, he gives us a line to follow, he gives us something to work up to, um, man, we should do that, right? Um, if being like Jesus means doing these things, we should remind ourselves every day and strive at it because that's how you get there. Um, let's close with a blessing and I'll let you all go. May the God who loves you enough um, to love you even though you are the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you that way, help you grow into, into godly men. May he help you grow into the men that, that um, genuinely reflect Christ and challenge the folks around them to be better um, because they desire to be like Christ. Um, amen. I'm going to put them on the back table. So.